Isaiah chapter 66. This week we are uh, continuing in our Missions Emphasis Month, and during this month, again, we're doing two things. Uh, number one, we're taking up a missions offering uh, that we can give uh, in the church, in Baptist churches specifically, uh, in Oklahoma. We normally take up four different offerings during the course of the year, and they all go towards missions. Well, last year, we decided to compile all of those into one month and really emphasize that with a higher goal. And so we got really close last year uh, to reaching our goal. Our goal this year is $2,500, and, and I think we can hit that if we're uh, being obedient and giving what God would have us to give. So I encourage you to do that. But we're not only just giving towards missions this month, we are taking a look at our responsibility to do missions because while it is necessary and important for us to give towards missions, our giving to missions should never be in place of doing missions. They should go together. But in a lot of churches and in a lot of individuals, we give, but we don't go because giving is easy. It's easier, right? I can write a check. I can put some money. I can give it, and then missions are being accomplished, but I don't have to do anything. And, and again, I don't want to dissuade us from giving. We should do that. But again, it's not supposed to be in place of our actually going and doing missions. And so last week, what we started in here was looking at the idea of doing missions by uh, and we started by looking at our commission as missionaries, as Christians. In Matthew 28, we're told, Jesus told his disciples to go, to go and make disciples of all nations. And so we looked at our commission and that missions isn't just for the pastor or the youth pastor or a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or the missionaries that, we, that are literally on the mission field, but every Christian is a missionary and we've been commissioned to go. And we looked at some reasons why uh, we are to go. We saw that um, we are to go in mission simply because he told us to. And if we didn't have any other reason, that should be enough. Our Father in heaven who saved us from our sin told us to go, so we ought to go. But the Word of God gives us some other reasons, like uh, the condition of humanity. Humanity's lost. They're in sin, and they need a Savior. Um, that we, we saw that the gospel is exclusive, and so we ought to go. There is, there's no other roads to heaven. It's just through Jesus. And if Jesus is the only way, then we need to go tell them what that way is. And then lastly, just simply because of what he's done for us in our personal lives. And so that's what we looked at last week. And uh, this morning, what I want to do is I want us to look at why we've been commissioned uh, to go and to, and to do missions. And to do that, I think we have to see God's heart towards missions or God's missionary heart. And in order for us to do that, I want to look at a passage that's tucked away at the end of one of the Old Testament's more uh, uh, more challenging yet monu monumental books uh, that you'll find in the Old Testament, a passage that I believe when you look at it, it really shows God's missionary heart or God's heart towards missions itself uh, as clearly or more clearly than any other passage in all of the Bible. So if you have your Bibles in open in, in Isaiah 66, stand with me. And we're going to read God's Word together, and then we're going, to, uh, we're going to examine it together. In Isaiah chapter 66, starting in verse 18, the Word of God says this, and we're going to read verse 24. Knowing their works and their thoughts, I have come to gather all nations and languages. They will come and see my glory. I will establish a sign among them, and I will send survivors from them to the nations 
to Tarshish, Put, Lud, who are archers, Tubal, Javan, and the coast and islands far away, who have not heard about me or seen my glory. And they will proclaim my glory among the nations. They will bring all of your brothers from all the nations as a gift to the Lord on horses and chariots and leaders and on mules and camels to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring an offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, I, I will also take some of them as priests and Levites, says the Lord. Verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make will remain before me, this is the Lord's declaration. So your offspring and your name will remain. All mankind will come to worship me from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. But as they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die, and their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all mankind. Let's pray. God, I pray today as we begin to examine what we've read this morning, I pray that you would speak to us. I pray that you'd honor the reading of your word. And now as we examine it, I pray that I would decrease and your spirit in me would increase and the words would be shared would be yours. And uh, Father, they would do exactly what you intend for them to do today, that you would impact us with your words today, that, that we would uh, come face to face with the reality of what you have to say about missions and how missions really get our start and what we do in the fact that you have a missionary heart yourself. And I pray as we examine that today, Father, that our love for you would deepen, that our relationship with you would be strengthened, and that, Father, we wouldn't be able to help ourselves but to leave this place to be on mission for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, in Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah is a great book. It has a lot of information in it. And in the last half, basically, of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has been dealing with the return Jews from exile. They had been exiled, and he's dealing with the last half of his book, up until the last few chapters, are dealing with their return from exile when they would be able to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But he also emphasizes that that wasn't going to be easy, it was going to be tough, and that it was not going to be the great restoration that they were anticipating. Okay, and then so in these last couple chapters, what Isaiah begins to do is he, he's reminded them that, yes, you're going to be brought back. You're going to be brought back from exile. You are going to be able to, to rebuild the, the temple and rebuild Jerusalem, but it's not the great restoration that you're thinking about. So the last two chapters in particular, he, he repeatedly says things to lift their eyes um, to a greater restoration that's going to come, and he and he qualifies exactly what that would be when he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. But in these verses and in this text that we've read at the very end and the closing of this book, I think that when we read it, we can really see that God has a missionary heart. And really, when we examine and understand that God has a missionary heart, it ought to be, we ought to also have that same missionary heart. But I think one of the reasons why sometimes we don't go is we might forget how much God's heart is leaned towards his mission. And these verses really, I think, bring out some things about that. And really, I want to divide this passage into three headings, if you will, uh, so we can really grasp the heart of God towards missions. Number one, the first thing I want us to see today is found in verse 18, and that is that, that God's missionary heart is announced. 
in verse 18, God uh, gives out his intentions. He announces what his mission will be. Let's look at it together, verse 18. He says, knowing their works and their thoughts, I have, and here's the key, I have come to gather all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. I have come to gather all the nations and all the tongues to come together and see his glory. Now, what an extraordinary mission that's going to be because he's going to gather people. But I want you to note, this is, this is a much wider perspective than what you get in the majority of the Old Testament. Now, let me explain that. Not in all of it, but in the majority of the Old Testament, that when Jesus talks about uh, seeing his glory or, or talking about gathering people up to see his glory, the majority of times you see that in the Old Testament, that's really reserved for his people, the Jews. And when he talks about in the majority, again, of the Old Testament, when the, when the non-Jews or the Gentiles, as we've come to be known in the New Testament, when they're talked about and the other nations are talked about primarily in the Old Testament is primarily in the terms of judgment. God's blessing on his people and God's judgment on the people that are not his. Now, again, I'm not saying broad stroke. That's every time in the Old Testament. But the bulk of the time when you see his people and in contrast to the nations, his people will be blessed and the nations will be judged. But this reference here, when he talks about it here, this resembles, a, uh, a, this is more closely resembling the Lord's promise concerning those outside of his people that he gave in Genesis 15 when he told Abraham, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And really the, the point of the, the, what I want to make here is God has always had a missionary heart. Even though in the Old Testament when you read it, you tend to, to view it as the blessings are only on, on the Jews and, and the judgment is on the, the non-Jews. But, but God's heart early on, early in Genesis 15, was that through the Jews, God would bless all the people. And that's what, what he talks about here. And we see it because if you look in verse 18, he says, Knowing their works and their thoughts, I have come, listen, to gather all nations and languages that they will come and see my glory. See, God has a plan and a desire to save the people that he created. God has a desire to save people. Peter talks about this in the, in the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, when he says it like this, God is not slow considering slowness as some of you consider slow, but instead is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, God has a missionary heart, and he announces exactly what that heart is. And the heart of God towards missions is the idea that he has a desire to redeem and to save people of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all languages. He has a desire to save men. And that we need to remember when we read specifically in the Old Testament, because early in man's history, God has promised that he would send a Savior not just for his people, but for the whole world. But not only does our text tell us and announce God's missionary heart, it actually goes a step further, and it gives us God's missionary heart in action. 
It, so it, it moves beyond just announcing this plan. Like in, in Genesis 15, it's more of an announcement. This is going to happen. But in this text, he doesn't just make an announcement that I'm coming to save all, all, all people or, or people of all races and nations and tongues. But he actually tells us and implements his plan in action, and he really does that in two ways that I want to show you uh, this morning. Number one, God's plan in action, number one, starts with the sending of his son. The sending of his son. Now you say, where do we see the sending of his son in this text? Because if you read it again, you will not see the name Jesus there. You will not see the name son there. So where do we get the idea that his plan starts in action with sending his son? Well, look at it, if you will, in verse 19. In verse 19, he says this. No, let's start back in verse 18. Knowing their works and their thoughts, I've come to gather all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. Listen to this. I will establish a sign among them. Now, that's the key. I will establish a sign among them, or I will set a sign among them. Now, when you see that, you might go, well, what is this sign? What, what, what are we talking about here? I mean, if we're not careful, I guarantee you, if you're not careful when you read this, you're really going to miss what it means, and we're going to miss it if we don't know specifically what Jesus, Isaiah is talking about when he says, I'm going to set a sign among them. What's this sign? Listen, that idea of God setting a sign among the people occurs five times in the book of Isaiah. Five times. And the very first time, he tells us exactly what this sign is, and it's in Isaiah chapter 7. If you want to flip there, you can. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Listen to it, and you can write it down, or you can come back and read it yourself. Here's what the God says to the people through Isaiah in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will set a sign before you. See, the virgin will conceive. Have a son and name him Emmanuel. So the very first time, and again, and that's not just referenced in Isaiah chapter 7, it's referenced in Isaiah chapter uh, 11. It's also referenced uh, to us in Isaiah chapter um, uh, 55 uh, as well. And so this sign, uh, Isaiah, and through, the Lord through Isaiah, takes the guesswork out of what this sign is and flat out tells us the sign to the people would be a virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son, and we will name him, or his name will be, called Emmanuel. We sing that at Christmas, right? We sing the song Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And what does the Bible tell us in the New Testament in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And then a little bit further down in, in John chapter 1, and the Word became flesh. It is a very clear representation of what God did through the conception of, of his son Jesus that he was sending of himself to the earth to become the son of God. And so the first action that Jesus that God puts in place for his mission to be accomplished of saving all the people of, or saving people of all tribes and nations and tongues, the first thing that he would do would be to send Jesus. And he's already done that because Jesus was born over 2,000 years ago. You can go back and you can read the story and the life of Jesus and you can compare it to the Old Testament prophecies that concerning Jesus and you will see that his life adds up time and time and time again where it, he is the literal conclusion of what the Old Testament prophesied would happen when God set, sent this sign to us. Now we often hear 
about God sending his son in the New Testament. I already mentioned John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And there's other places that talk about Jesus being the son of God and God sending his son. But we need to remember that the Old Testament points to the same truth, that God would send his son to the world. So the first action that God takes in order to draw people of all nations, tribes, and tongues to himself, the first action that he would do would be to send Jesus. And he's done that. But he doesn't stop there. There's a second plan that this, this text tells us that he has to put in action for his, his missionary heart to be accomplished. And that is he not only sends Jesus into the world, but he sends his people out to the world. Look at it again in verse 19. Verse 19 says, I will establish a sign among them, that's Jesus, now listen, and I will send survivors from them to the nations. I will send survivors from them to the nations, to Tarshish, Put, Lud, who are archers, to Baal, Javan, and the coast and islands far away who have not heard about me or seen my glory. And so this text tells us very clearly, not only does God put his plan into action by sending his son, but he also puts his plan into action by sending his people out to the world. Now, I want you to think about that. As if sending Jesus to this world wasn't extraordinary enough, we are also told that he sends his people back out to the world to do what? To deliver his message. We're going to talk about his message in just a second. But he entrusts his missionary work to his people. He entrusts his missionary work to his missionary people, which is us. Notice where he sends them out to. I mean, he lists out a whole group of people, Tarshish and Put and Lud, and he mentions all these names. And, and what does that mean for us? Well, if you, if you understand the context of who he's writing to, which is Isaiah, and you understand Isaiah's time and age, the nation people groups that are mentioned here represented the ends of the earth or the edges of the known world. Okay, so he, he's writing down. Sounds, sounds pretty, pretty close to what um, G, Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, for you will be my witness. You will receive power, and the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, the people group that is mentioned in Isaiah represented the edges of the known world. Now, that word known is important because he follows that up. Because the gospel doesn't stop at the known world. Look at what he says again in verse 19. To all these lands he mentions, and then this, and the coasts and the islands far away who have not heard about me or seen my glory. You see, the mission of God has no limits to the people that we reach or the places where we're to go. The fact of the matter is God's missionary heart in action is, number one, to send Jesus to the world. He had to send Jesus to accomplish what we could and ourselves could never accomplish, to be God's perfect sacrifice, to, to die on the cross, pay for our sins. But then after that, he has commissioned us to take his message out everywhere, not just to the known world, but to the unknown world. 
not just to your neighbor across the street, but the unknown person in your town or the unknown in your community or the unknown places that you don't think about when it comes to sharing the gospel. The gospel has no limits where it goes and who it reaches. And the message is also important. What is this message that we are to give? Not just where we go and who we reach, but he actually even gives us exactly what we're supposed to preach. Look at it again in verse 19. So I'm going to send out all these people to all these places, the edges of the known world, and then even further to the unknown world. And then look at what it says, and they will proclaim my glory among the nations. You see, when we go out in missions, when anyone goes out in missions, we are going out to proclaim God's glory. Well, what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? You see, the glory of God is made known to us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 3. And it's a simple verse, and we often hear it, and we may even know it by memory, but we need to tie it into what it really means. What is the glory of God? Well, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says this, The Son is the glory of God. The Son, Jesus, is the glory of God. And so when he commissions us to go out to the world, he not only tells us where we are to go and where we're to stop. And by the way, there is no stop. That's the whole point of saying to the coastlands that have never heard that. There is no stop. But he also tells us exactly the message we're to proclaim. And it's glory of God, and the glory of God is his son. Listen, we can go out and we can take lots of messages to the world around us, but if we don't take the message of Jesus, we've missed our commission. You see, the message is Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus can save. We can talk to people about their attitudes. We can talk to people about the sin that they're in and, and how it can lead them down a road of destruction. And, and listen, those aren't, those aren't necessarily wrong. I mean, people caught up in sin eventually are going to have to pay the penalty of that sin, and it can lead to destruction. There's nothing wrong with that. But if we don't emphasize the glory of God, then we didn't preach the right message. Because people can go around and try to fix the outside on all they want, but if they don't fix the inside, they're still lost in their sin. And by the way, they can't fix the inside. Only God can fix the inside through his glory, which is Jesus. So God's missionary heart in Isaiah 66 is announced. He tells us it's coming, the same as he did in Genesis 15 to Abraham, but he takes it a step further, and he even tells us how I'm going to put this plan in action. I'm going to send my son into the world, and then I'm going to send my people out to the world with my son's message. What an awesome privilege to be incorporated into God's missionary plan. But see, it doesn't just stop there. Not only does he tell us about what his mission is and how he's going to accomplish this mission, but the third thing that he gives us in Isaiah 66 is he actually goes a step further than that and tells us what the accomplishment of this will be. What is the end result of him sending his son Jesus into the world and his sending his people out to the world with his son's message? He tells us what the end result will be. And he tells us basically two things in, in verses 21 through 24. I want to give you both of them this morning. Number one, the first thing that he says that will happen will be unity of the people. There will be a unity of the people. 
You see, through Isaiah, God says, I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites. And the idea was he was going to set aside some of these people to, uh, to be uh, a royal priesthood, to be in charge, if you will, to rule and to reign. But the staggering, amazing truth is this, that the, the, the truth is even greater than this because of Jesus, all of God's people will have equal access to him. You see, the, the, the Levites were the worship leaders of, of the Old Testament, and, and priests were the ones that have access to God. But the greater truth is not as he, that just some of us, but is that all of, God, all of God's people, all the people that come to him, will be priests and Levites. Now, how do we know this? Because We know it because of Peter. And Peter says it like this. He says, it, it, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. The truth of the matter is what, what this references to here in Isaiah 66 is that there's not going to be any more separation of Jews and Gentiles. There's not going to be any more separation of Levites and priests and everyone else. The idea is that all of God's children will have equal access to him, the same as a Levite and a priest. We all are open for the first time. We are all able to lead and worship. We're all able to come into his presence like a priest. And so there is no more separation by people groups. There, are, there is no more Jew and Gentile. There is no more slave and free, as Paul would talk about in the New Testament. There is no more black and white or rich or poor or male or female, that all of God's people will be unified into one body of people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And then he gives us a second idea that will come from his accomplishment. Not only will he bring together a unity of people all into one group, but in, he also tells us that he's going to provide them a new abiding place. A new abiding place. Now, Isaiah has already introduced his readers to the idea of a new heaven, a new earth, all the way in, actually not all the way back, just one chapter back in chapter 65. So in chapter 65, Isaiah has already introduced his people or the, his readers to the idea that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in verse 23, we see that this new creation will be a place where everyone can come before God, and no longer just the Israelites, but all nations will have equal access to him, and the worship will be continual, continual and uninterrupted. Now, on Wednesday nights, we've been going through the book of Revelation now for over a month, I guess since January. And we've just spent, what, four weeks, I think, on chapters four and five. Those of y'all been coming, is that about right? Four or five weeks. And, so, and when, last Wednesday, I kind of summarized what chapter four and five is really all about. Chapter four and chapter five of the book of Revelation, if you wanted to summarize it into one grouping, would be heavenly worship. And in chapter four, you have the worship of, of the created uh, beings and the elders towards God who sits on his throne for being holy and for being the creator. And then in chapter five, there is a transition in worship in heaven that goes from solely focusing on God's holiness and God's power as a creator into, God, into praising God for his salvation through his son, Jesus. That's a transition that makes, and heavenly worship is all, is all throughout that book. And a few weeks ago when I was talking to our group on Wednesday night, I asked the question, how in the world are we going to make it in heaven if we can't worship here? Because worship is the activity of heaven. 
It's what we do. The Bible's clear that this worship that takes place in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation is never-ending worship. It's never-ending. And he says that in this place that we're going to go, no longer are we going to be different people. We're all going to be unified and together. We're all going to have equal access to him. The worship is going to be continual and uninterrupted. You ever had a worship service that was just interrupted with something? And it's hard to keep going. There's not going to be any interruptions when it comes to our worship. He even says it like this. Listen to what he says. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me. The worship in this place will be uninterrupted and be continual month after month, week after week. Our worship of God will be uninterrupted by sin. It will be uninterrupted by rebellion as it is in our world day after day after day after day. What a culmination. I've once said it like this, I, personal opinion, and I'm not big on necessarily personal opinions, but I, I think I can really back it up. But I believe that the end of Revelation is the culmination of what God intended in the beginning of Genesis. A time of uninterrupted and un, un, unbroken fellowship with God. And then sin broke it. And at the end, because of God's missionary heart, he announced it. He sent Jesus to the world to save the world. And he sends his people out with that message to the world so that he can save those that come to him. So that he can unite them into one people and give them a new place where they can come and enjoy an unhindered, uninterrupted fellowship with him. What an amazing missionary heart our God has. But you know, I want to close with one thought this morning because the, the book doesn't end there. If you go to chapter to verse 24, he this is an exciting I would think you read chapters, you read chapter verses 18 through 23, and it's pretty exciting. God's got this plan. Here's what my plan is. I'm going to set a sign among them, and then I'm going to send my people out, and they're going to take the message and proclaim his glory to the, to the world, and then I'm going to unite these people, and I'm going to give them a new place where they can come and worship. I mean, this, I mean, if you don't get excited about that, I don't know. Your wood might be wet. I'm just saying that's pretty exciting. But he doesn't end there. And in verse 24, he, he ends this, in, this incredible story or this, this prophecy, if you will, on a really somber note. Look at verse 24. And as they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die, and their fire will never go out. And they will be a horror to all mankind. That, that idea of worm never dying and their fire never going out is a reference actually to something Jesus says. Actually, Jesus referenced it from here in the New Testament. And he talks about um, the grave. And how, and listen, you can go and you can read. Here, here's what I want to emphasize so we don't get off track. You can go throughout the New Testament and you can read lots, lots of descriptions about this place called hell or the grave. And, and by the way, don't mistake the grave and hell for the same things. Technically, hell is the lake of fire that doesn't come until the very end. And death and the grave and Satan and his angels and all those that aren't found in the Lamb's Book of Life, they are cast into hell, which is the lake of fire, okay? But until that time comes, they are in a place called the grave or Sheol, if you will, from the Old Testament. They're in this place, and it is a tormented place. Jesus talks about it when he gives the story of Lazarus and the rich man. 
Okay, you remember Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus is in heaven. He's in Abraham's bosom. And, but the rich man who didn't know God was in this place of torment, right? And so there's this idea that they're in this place of torment, and there will be there until the, every, all is culminated and every, all the evil and all that is thrown into this lake of fire that's talked about and in Revelation. And again, I don't have time to go into all that, but here's the thing. You can read about every aspect of what the Bible describes, this tormented place where the unsaved go. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven in the New Testament. And he can, you can read all of that. But if you miss the point of why it's there, then you've really missed the point. It's not just there to scare people. It's there to remind us of a simple truth. God is a righteous and holy judge that cannot allow sin to not be punished. And the words of Isaiah are exactly true, that those who rebel against him, who are never, don't ever respond to his missionary heart, that he loves the world so much that he would send his son into the world to die for them, and so much that he would commission his people to go to the world with the message of his son so that they could be saved. If they continually to reject him, this is the end result. Now, we can know a lot of things about hell, but we do know one, or, or, or the, the grave, if you will, this tormented place that they go. But we know one thing in particular. Their bodies are salted with worm and fire, and it never cease. That's a miserable, miserable thought. And the reason why he ends on this somber message is to remind us of the end result of someone not coming to him. And if you and I, we can get excited, and I think we should, about God have a missionary heart so much that he announced it, he put it into action in the two ways, he even tells us what the end result will be. But if we're not mindful of the result of those who don't respond, we more than likely would just be, get excited about what God's done for us, but not be challenged to take that message to those who we know if they don't respond, what their end result will be. What a passionate and great opportunity we have to be a part of God's missionary heart. But don't forget, there are real world, real eternal consequences for people not coming to him.